Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <music> Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a recently published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. So I really have no idea where my electricity comes from. I've powered up my computer, plugged in the mic, and hit record, and I know at some level that I've made myself part of an electrical grid that I'm channeling into my home, into the wall socket, up into my computer, electricity generated somewhere else. But I have no idea where that somewhere else is. I mean, I can step outside and trace the power lines emerging from my house down the street, and then they turn a corner, and I can't see that far. My guest today has made those power lines historically visible for one region of North America. In the middle decades of the 20th century, small settler towns in the deserts of the Southwest began booming into major metropolitan hubs. In 1940, Phoenix had a population of only 65,000 and an economy based largely on agriculture. Forty years later, it was a city of skyscraper tombs, in the words of Edward Abbey, with 1.5 million people. And these people demanded power. Power for factories, for air conditioners, for televisions and refrigerators. For Phoenix and other southwestern cities, that somewhere else from which electricity was channeled was the Navajo Nation, the largest reservation in the United States, and by 1980, home to two of the largest strip mines in the world. With their traditional economy targeted for disruption by mid-century federal policies, some Navajo leaders welcomed resource extraction and coal-burning plants to alleviate poverty. But exploitative energy contracts and devastating ecological impacts only fostered inequality. By the 1960s and 1970s, a new generation of Navajo activists rose up to challenge their colonial relationship to the urban centers of the modern Southwest a once-fragmented region stitched together by the infrastructure of energy. Andrew Needham, Associate Professor of History at New York University, tells this story with eloquence and force in Power Lines, Phoenix and the Making of the Modern Southwest, from Princeton University Press. I began by asking him how he came to write this book. I started this project actually long, at least mentally, long before I started uh, graduate school. I'm not from the Southwest. Uh, I'm not from Phoenix. Um, but I was on a family vacation when I was in um, either late high school or early college. Uh, and we were going camping in the San Juan Mountains. Um, and so we had, my family and I had flown uh, from Wisconsin, where we lived, into Albuquerque. Uh, and we're driving up through western New Mexico to southwestern Colorado, and I saw a kind of plume of smoke on the horizon, and I initially thought, you know, we're driving through this kind of the kind of high, you know, desert 
kind of red rock landscape of the, the uh, eastern stretch of the Colorado Plateau. Uh, and I saw this plume of smoke on the horizon, and I initially thought it was a forest fire, and I was kind of excited by that idea that I would get to see the, you know, the, the planes dropping, fire retardant, and all of that. All these things that I'd seen on the on the news, and then I came over a crest that sits above the valley that Four Corners Power Plant sits down in and saw the stacks, the four stacks of Four Corners Power Plant and had a, you know, a real moment of outrage of, kind of well, what, what is this doing here? I'm out here going to see nature and I'm going to have this, you know, experience of difference. And here's this factory. Like, how can this factory be here? And so, the, you know, and then, of course, at that night, you know, we st- stayed in a hotel where I unknowingly almost certainly used the power that had been generated there. And that, you know, that experience of, you know, what is this doing here uh, stayed, had stayed with me a long, long time. And as I was in graduate school thinking about uh, the kind of work that I wanted to do, and I began really as an environmental historian and a Western historian, I kept coming back to Four Corners as a, as a site of incongruity. Uh, and that didn't, you know, that, that question, you know, why is this power plant located in this landscape didn't make sense to me in terms of the stories that historians had told about urban development. It didn't make sense to me in the stories that historians had told about the place of Indian peoples in kind of post-World War II life. And so I started to investigate. I started following the Power lines away from Four Corners and found that this was a power plant built by a company named Arizona Public Service, which was the largest private utility in the state of Arizona, that it was centered in Phoenix, that the power lines you know, in many ways led back to led back to Phoenix. And that really that was really the kind of when I found out that the power lines from Four Corners led to Phoenix and that these two, you know, seemingly very different landscapes. Uh, and different in the way that we think of them in terms of modernity, one being a kind of modern sprawling metropolis, the other being, um, you know, uh, know, the kind of landscape of John Ford, um, that these were actually intimately tied together in the process of, uh, of generating the power that, um, that fuels modern life. Um, that was really the kind of takeoff point for my for my story, and led me to start to kind of question all kinds of things about what do we mean when we say modern? Where do native peoples fit into these stories of modernity? Why haven't we thought about how native resources function in the metropolitan economy? Uh, in you know, in a kind of you know, in a cohesive and systematic way. Um, uh, you know, th- those were the kinds of questions that really um, almost jumped, you know, jumped out at me the minute I started to kind of think you know, deeply about this power plant. So one of the most, um, I think, innovative and important contributions of this work, which you are kind of alluding to here, is the, the different scholarly fields that you're integrating, um, you're putting into conversation. 
So I want to identify a couple of those threads and and see how you weave them together, especially for uh, people who listen to this podcast who who uh, may not be familiar with them. Um, so I want to begin with with studies of U.S. cities in the 20th century. Um, what have you learned from this sort of his, this very important historiography? And but what are you also challenging in it in this book? The the story that historians have told for the past 20 years about American cities is the story is a story of the way capitalism has unevenly developed space. Um, and kind of central to that story has been the construction of uh, has been a story about the construction of what Robert Shelf calls the white noose that surrounds increasingly non-white inner cities. Uh, so it's a story of kind of the disinvestment in inner cities that helps to, to produce suburban America. Um, and that, you know, that narrative to me, this kind of narrative of, of, you know, almost, you know, of a, of a white noose that surrounds cities uh, uh, and that the, that kind of explaining inequality is central to urban history. It was deeply influential on me at the same time in telling this story of a kind of, white suburban America and increasingly non-white inner city America, what got left out of that story was the experience of peoples that live in other landscapes. Um, cities exist not only as kind of these discrete spaces, but as part of sprawling, uh, sprawling networks that reach deep into the, deep into the countryside for water, for power, for, uh, for waste disposal Kind of all, you know, all of the, in a way, what environmental studies scholars would call negative externalities of, of urban life. And so is thinking about how do kind of the Navajo people of the Southwest fit into these stories of metropolitan inequality allowed me really to, to challenge that map that urban historians have drawn of, you know, kind of inequality in metropolitan space and to think about the way that metropolitan development, the growth of these, of a place like Phoenix, which grows from 40,000 people in 1940 or 65,000 people in 1940 to, to, you know, over, you know, over 3 million, uh, you know, in the present day uh, creates these kind of far reaching systems of, exploitation and expropriation um, that it relies on it that that those people rely on uh, in in Phoenix to live their lives uh, so kind of you redrawing the map of inequality in metropolitan America was certainly to include native peoples and to, to say that kind of underdevelopment the underdevelopment of the Navajo reservation and the Navajo nation is central to what Phoenix becomes, you know, I think is, you know, perhaps my, the, the largest project of the, of the book itself. Mm. So, you know, native American studies or native American history, um, has rarely, um, though maybe increasingly, um, there are a few instances and I think there will be a few more in the coming years turned his attention to urban space, um, in the 20th century. Uh, but this this isn't exactly a history of native peoples in cities, which we're starting to see, or even a history about cities built on native land, though, of course, Phoenix is. 
um, but rather a city, as you say, that grew through the extraction of resources um, and ultimately the underdevelopment of the Navajo Nation. So what do you think this work has to offer and what has it learned from um, Native American and indigenous studies? And, and do you see yourself as working within that field? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I very much do see myself working in that, in that field and what, in what it, you know, what that field has taught me in reading the kind of variety of, of, you know, the variety of, you know, great books that have come out in, you know, in the time that I've, that I've been working on, on this book is the kind of the flexibility of, of the political strategies of, of native people uh, in pursuing, you know, in pursuing power uh, in the, in oftentimes very dire circumstances in, you know, a nation that, you know, oftentimes uh, allows uh, structurally, you know, conceives of kind of native people as, as without power. Um, And so this is, you know, my books, if you had to kind of, put it into what kind of history this is. Uh, this is predominantly political history. Um, but what I found in looking at the variety of strategies that um, Navajo people used is that you see a whole, you know, a really broad range of, you know, stories that Navajo leaders, kind of Navajo youth activists, um, uh, and, you know, everyday people living, you know, on these landscapes tell about what energy development is doing to their landscapes and what the possibility of it is. I mean, there's, you know, a number of, you know, Navajo leaders in the fifties and sixties who really imagine energy development as enabling the Navajo nation to, to realize the same kind of economic growth that Phoenix has realized they're going to use, they imagine using the power from these plants to, you know, in effect, build a high tech economy, uh, uh, on the Navajo nation. And as that, um, as those possibilities, uh, and as those promises increasingly seem, you know, empty to lots and lots of people, you know, on the Navajo nation, people turn to different strategies. Um, people turn to a uh, what I see as an anti-colonial critique that very much kind of locates these plants as not part of a story of the kind of mutual growth of a region, which is the previous story that was being told in a story being very much told by Arizona's political leaders, um, and being a story into being a story of uh, of of colonization that demands a decolonial response. Uh, which and uh, and then you know kind of means has a variety of um, you know has a variety of differences. What from um, you know a strategy of of kind of demanding the nationalization of coal mines and power plants by leaders to a demand that. Um, to a belief that these, that energy development and Navajo culture more broadly are just incompatible. Mm-hmm. 
Let's let's dive into the narrative um, a little and bit. And conceiving that not oh, sure. Sure. Just to, to sort of step back and, and get us to that point. Um when uh, Navajo people start articulating these various political strategies, um, which you're beginning to introduce here. Um, but I want to set up the story a little bit. Um, and one of the things I, I love about uh, environmental history is that, you know, I think I'm reading a book about the 20th century U.S. And all of a sudden on page 27, there are dinosaurs, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one of my friends has said I'm the only urban historian to work the word triceratops yeah. <laughs> uh, into his, into his book, which I'm quite proud of. Yeah. So, so, you know, I do want to, you know, I, I, I ostensibly want to start in the early 20th century, but, but before that, I mean, what is, what are the elements of the geological backstory of the Southwest that are important and that bear upon the 20th century story? Well, I'd long, re- there's the kind of almost a trope, an environmental history of you know the book you begin your book you know when the earth was young and mm-hmm. and all these things and I avoided that for a long time and then I really came to think that it's important to understand you know the processes that um, that determine why coal is located in particular places and not in others and these you know this becomes deeply kind of important uh, in the book um, and do also to explain the kind of processes that end up shaping the landscape, uh, the landscape itself. Um, and so, um, you know, that story reaches back, you know, a hundred million years ago when the, uh, when the Cretaceous uh, sea, you know, there was basically a, a giant kind of sea that spanned the intercontinent of North America. Uh, and it's, you know, the kind of swamplands along that sea that give rise to the coal beds uh, of today. Um, and so I kind of began, you know, with that story just to, you know, in part to say that this is a, going to be a story about kind of exploitation and inequality between people. But this is also a story about the kind of exploitation of a resource that exists because of um you know, not because of human action, uh, but because of kind of long natural processes that people have had, you know, nothing, you know, nothing to do with, uh, and that they will kind of exploit at a particular point in time for a particular set of a particular set of reasons. Hmm. So you call um, the Southwest in the early 20th century a, a region of fragments. What do you mean? I think there's a way in which oftentimes historians take region for granted um, and that, that regions exist as connected, um, connected places, you know, as a kind of matter of, as, you know, as a matter of being. Uh, and one of the stories that I really wanted to tell in this book is how, you know, how these connections, how, um, how connections between, you know, Phoenix and the Navajo Nation and then the rest of, you know, uh, several other cities in the Southwest came came to be and came to forge connections that didn't exist uh, before. So kind of starting early in the, you know, in the 20th century, um, I really see the kind of, that, you know, parts of what will become the region I call the modern and Southwest as existing with little, you know, little connection to each 
other. Um, so the Navajo uh, Navajo spaces of kind of northern Arizona have little connection to you know to Phoenix, uh, which exists as a kind of you know at, you know small agricultural city um, in central Arizona. They're very different um, spaces ecologically. Um, there's very little kind of you know human connection between you know between those between those different places um and it's the kind of it's the construction of a network of power lines uh that comes to you know forge a regional a, a sense that these places are are, are it both it forges both actual material connections right between you know Phoenix and the Navajo Nation but also an understanding by people in both places that these you know that you know that these two places you know are increasingly part of the same region uh and that you know those connections will eventually span um come to span not only Phoenix and the Navajo Nation but will you know will connect to um other cities in the southwest because one of the one of the stories i i tell is how you know a con- an initial connection between you know phoenix and energy resources on the navajo nation um you know comes to be a kind of you know grid of power lines that connects the navajo nation not only to phoenix but also to albuquerque los angeles salt lake city denver uh to a point where uh the navajo nation really becomes the center of this new region that you know ends up providing a large amount of the electrical power that will fuel its development. Hmm. So one of the central um, kind of actors, if you can call it that in this story, is the, the federal government. It's changing, but it's vital role in, um, in stitching this region together um, and then fostering a certain kind of uh, unequal and, and damaging form of urban growth. Um, you know, one of the places where we see that extension of federal power most viscerally, at least in the early part of this book, is the stock reduction of Navajo animals in the 1930s, which, you know, just kind of stuck out for me because it, it, it casts a much darker light, I think, on the um, sometimes celebrated head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, John Collier. Um, but I was also, you know, reading about this, you know, as you put it, this destruction of what they called sheep units um, among the Navajo, this sort of relationship that they had with <laughs> animals that was – that was. Um, uh, part of their, you know, culture and way of life and mode of production, and I, I can't, I couldn't help but think about this as a process of enclosure, almost a kind of violent, originary or primitive accumulation that that needs to occur in order to create a capitalist market. I mean, the the relationship between Navajos and their animals is not one that um, that is conducive to the introduction of capitalism. So you kind of destroy their means of subsistence. Is that a, is that a fair understanding of what's going on maybe with stock reduction or, or how does this kind of stock reduction fit into the story of stitching the region together? No, that's a great, that's a great question. And I have to start this answer by just giving a, a shout out to both um, you know, historians like Martha, uh, Marshall Weisiger, who have done, who I drew on extensively and then also a kind of, you know, a large number of Navajo scholars, uh, Jennifer Dennett-Dale and the, a lot of other, 
there are a lot of others who have done really marvelous work kind of excavating um, the back history of this, uh, of this, of this story. And, you know, I think that, you know, what, what they've shown and what I drew upon is that, um, is that the process of, of stock reduction uh, served to dis- served to destroy, I think, a, a you know a means of subsistence that was already that was already in the kind of 1920s shaky because of a variety of ecological uh, changes, but had allowed Navajo people to retain a kind of flexible strategy uh, for um, you know for survival in a market in a market economy. Uh, that kind of you know that kind of life i think for new deal leaders seemed um i mean i think seemed archaic to them um and i think that you know one of the if we think about you know what collier's doing in you know in his policies uh he really has a kind of you know for you know i mean Collier has his definite merit, right? I mean, kind of, and you know, the kind of policies of ending allotment, ending the Dawes Act, ending the the kind of crippling, uh, the kind of the cultural, you know, violence of the boarding schools. I, you know, all of that is, you know, is to his credit. Um, at the same time, I think Collier is willing to is is very hesitant to kind of listen to. Um, to native people and attempt to attempt to kind of make conversation a two way street when he's kind of proposing stock reduction policies, uh, you know, on, you know, to Navajo audiences. Um, he speaks in English. Um, he doesn't kind of um, allow time for uh, his remarks to be translated into Navajo. He's not, particularly concerned he does not seem particularly concerned with you know uh, making sure that these are that 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 he's understood or that he understands what you know what Navajo concerns are um, and you know I think he really sees what's required is a project of rationalization um, of you know, rationalization of environments, rationalization of land use. Uh, in his mind, this is what will, you know, save the Navajo in the modern world. Um, you know, in practice, he, you know, his policies end up, you know, being the final thing that I think, you know, dis, you know, you know, fractures this subsistence strategy that had, you know, allowed Navajos to be to have a, until that point, a quite successful response to conquest. So Phoenix in 1940, small um, sort of oasis city. Um, Phoenix in 1960 looks like a very different place and uh, (laughs) very different place. So some of the, some of the actors you kind of trace in this are these uh, crop of, of business leaders, um, in Phoenix that represent kind of new industries. They're not the old, 
old white wealth of Arizona. I mean, if you can even call it old, um, but but <laughs> yeah, represents yeah, yeah, old is a relative term. old is a relative term. A few decades older, but um, but I want to talk a bit about these boosters and um, and and not, not just what they were up to, but also if you could talk a bit about the imagery of native people in the region that they deployed to sort of sell the region to um, attract investment, to attract, you know, settlers essentially to attract certain federal policies. Um, And if I can just add one more element to that question, it's so interesting to see the frequent reappearance of Barry Goldwater in this text. Um, Yeah. Because, you know, here's this founding father of the new right uh, that's often read about, written about in these histories of the rise of modern conservatism. But, uh, you know, I had no idea he had so much to say about Indian people, you know, and, and the role of federal Indian policy, which, I, you know, I don't think you get out of some of the texts. So big question, you know, what are these business people up to in the middle decades of the 20th century that helped propel, you know, Phoenix to this vastly different place? No, that's a great that's a great question, and I think that you know one of the they, they, what they see is a couple of things. One of the things they see is um, capital that's increasingly mobile in, in a couple ways. Uh, one way is that you know factories have since the early twentieth century really kind of begun to open a series of kind of subsidiaries and branch plants, um, and so making their city attractive to that kind of industrial capital, which means kind of legal changes, uh, laws that uh, prevent unionization, that um, uh, cut taxes on businesses, that cut down on regulation, kind of what we think of as the the kind of economic policies of modern, modern conservatism work as a local, as a, you know, local industrial development. Strategy, and I think that that's really where they, where those set, you know, those sets of one of the places those sets of ideas emerge from. Um, the other way that they see capital being mobile is in people, um, as in white, you know, particularly white suburbanites who, because of uh, policies that the federal government enacts in the uh, during the New Deal and afterward, are increasingly able to take on debt. And to take on mortgage debt, uh, and because and you know, and, but other kinds of other kinds of you know, other kinds of debt, you know, whether it's um, you know consumer credit at Barry Goldwater's department store to buy you know a new you know new washer dryer. Um, in a way, these kind of white people who you know, as uh, Ira Katznelson has described this era of the you know kind of New Deal up until. You know, the 1960s is a moment when affirmative action was white, uh, when the federal government is making, you know, uh, uh, is is giving preferential treatment in terms of the way that they will guarantee white people credit, um, you know, over, you know, over non-white people. Um, those people, you know, because they can, you know, have mortgage debt that's federally underwritten, that's federally insured, um, become really attractive. Uh, and, you know, ironically, kind of the presence of Native Americans becomes a kind of cultural way to differentiate how life in Phoenix is different um, than, you know, than life they might find elsewhere in the, 
you know, elsewhere in the country. Um, and what makes Phoenix different is you can have all the, you know, all the pleasures of modern, you know, modern life. You can have, um, you know, outdoor recreation. You can, you know, you, in, you can have, you know, you can have a warm climate. Uh, you can avoid snow. Um, but you can also uh, escape from Phoenix um, uh, very easily and, um, um, uh, and experience it's a different way of life on, uh, on Indian, on Indian, you know, in nature and on Indian land. There's a terrific quote that, uh, they, you know, one of the things that these boosters do is kind of invite a bunch of reporters out to kind of profile Phoenix, um, uh, in the, you know, in the, 50s and 60s, they usually invite them out in February. <laughs> There's no, no accident. Um, and, you know, in one of these stories, uh, an executive, you know, who's profiled says, um, I used to commute from Oyster Bay every day, an hour and a half each way. Oyster Bay is a suburb of New York on Long Island. Um, now I live on the desert just, be- just beyond town. I can go home at lunchtime and take a dip in my pool. After work or on weekends, I play tennis and golf. Sometimes I go prospecting for uranium in the Superstition Mountains with an Indian friend of mine. I just enjoy life about ten times as much. Um, yeah, the Indian friend of mine. That's perfect. The Indian friend, right, kind of gets embedded yeah. in you know into this story as a way to to experience difference, right? And and yeah. it's oftentimes you know oftentimes kind of trips out into the Indian spaces of Arizona are really characteristic. Right, just trips back in time um, and saying that you can live a modern life and then drive, you know, 100 miles north and you can be, you know, you can experience time as it was, you know, you know, 50, 100 years ago. You know, the, the racialization that, that happens there, too, with my Indian friend. I mean, you would never have that person writing back and saying, you know, I moved to Phoenix and, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I have a black friend, you know, from the. Right. You know, no, exactly. So they would never say I mean, that, that in the I mean, 1950s. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's one of the fascinating things, right, is the, is the way that kind of race in the Southwest becomes a strategy of, you know, becomes a strategy of development. Whereas in the South, right, all these you know, cities like Atlanta are, you know, are saying that, I mean, Atlanta is calling itself the city too busy to hate. Right, right. Right. Which and is like, you saying, know, well, we're not like, yeah, right. you know, we're. Um, yeah, so I mean, I, and I think that that you know, the way that, and which you know, kind of Indian people in this don't even fig- they don't figure as people, right? They figure as as you know, as iconic ideas of of difference. But of course, if we go out to the Navajo Nation um, in this period, there are some real changes happening. Um, in the growth of Phoenix, means certain infrastructure projects on the Navajo Nation. Uh, in this period, did Navajo leaders, as the as the city is growing, um, and as it, it requires, it demands more and more energy, and, and city leaders and state leaders start to look to the Navajo Nation uh, to provide that energy. How, what was the what was the response of the Navajo leadership in this period, in the fifties and the early sixties? Did they encourage this kind of development? And if so, uh, with what's what strings attached? So, I think the important. Context here. I think the deeply important context for this moment is the federal policy of termination. Um, you know, and I think 
discrimination is experienced by Indian leaders uh, in a much more kind of Indian political leaders in a much more kind of visceral as a much more visceral danger than we've than we've appreciated. I mean, I think that they that kind of Indian political leaders across the country are really imagining an ins, you know, an incipient kind of end to um, you know to federal protections uh, and you know and you know, to treaty protections, and so they are you know very much kind of looking for strategies to you know create um, you know create development that can you know protect their people from you know from this this moment. Um, at the same time, this is going on. Uh, Political leaders in Phoenix and Arizona are very much courting, uh, you know, Indians around the state, saying kind of, uh, you know, you know, work in a sense, work with us, open your lands to development. This is the this is the route, you know, this is the route to solving uh, your problems of underdevelopment. Um, you know, bring your resources into the market, um, and you know, this is, you know, this is. There are you know conferences held where, um, you know, Indian uh, you know elected officials are brought, you know, go to Phoenix, meet with business executives, tour, you know, tour farms and power plants, you know, and are kind of told all of this can you you know all this can be yours if you you know if you kind of work and ally with us against the federal government. Uh, of course, there's a you know you know, long existing strategy and idea here that um, held by the state leaders that the federal lands uh, in their state are unjustly controlled by the federal government. And so this is, I think, you know, we can think of, of kind of Indian officials and Indian leaders really caught, but, you know, existing between these two, between these two kind of poles, and really, you know, kind of looking for strategies uh, um, to, you know, create you know, new means of economic support, um, you know, at this moment in the 19, you know, really kind of, I think you know, we could locate it from the late 40s, you know, up into the, you know, up into the late 60s. So by the by the 1960s, uh, the Navajo Nation, the Hopi Nations, um, you write, become the sort of broad point of origin for most of the electricity used uh, by consumers in the Southwest. You, you know, as you say, you flip on a light switch in your downtown Phoenix apartment and you link yourself unknowingly to the Navajo Nation and an infrastructure project there. I mean, in theory, this should make Navajo people very wealthy. But as we know, um, in all sorts of places around the world where um, people without forms of institutional power that have natural resources under their land don't actually benefit from them um, unless they are able to uh, nationalize in a sense, or perhaps as one of the paths that one could take. Uh, and, and in the 1960s and in the 1970s, um, you write about this new crop of Navajo leaders that began to challenge um, the energy policies of an earlier generation, the way the contracts were written and the relationship that's developed. Um, can you talk a bit about that movement in the sixties and seventies, what it looks like? Um, maybe sure. And I about think, Peter McDonald. Yeah. Sure. No, and I think it's really important to realize just how exploitative these, you know, contracts that are signed in the, in the, 
in the 1960s are. Uh, Navajo Mine, which is the kind of the mine that feeds Four Corners Power Plant, um, pays the tribe a royalty of uh, 15 cents per ton of coal used on the reservation. The Four Corners Plant is on the reservation, or 20 cents uh, um, for it used off the reservation. Arizona Public Service, the utility that then buys the coal from the mining company, Utah International, uh, that that runs uh, and own you know and owns owns the lease for Navajo Mine, um, uh, is paid three dollars a ton. Um, so um, you know you see a kind of really dramatic you know difference from kind of what you know who is getting the returns from this you know from this this development uh at black mesa and kayenta mines which are located you know near the junction of the navajo and hopi reservations uh the royalties there are 20 and 25 cents uh um per ton um and those are those are royalties that remain fixed for a long long time uh so by the 1970s when these kind of both when these returns look relatively paltry uh, and when the environmental damages associated with coal mining uh, and uh, and electrical power generation are becoming plainly evident to people who live near the near the plants, um, this you know really kind of you know creates a you know a kind of broad scale sense I think you know among Navajos that these have been and you know that leaders that entered into really exploitative uh, arrangements. Um, and so this is kind of where you know Peter McDonald, who's elected tribal chairman in 1970, comes in. Um, uh, Peter McDonald, you know, runs on you know uh, you know on a platform uh, of saying not that I will end um, energy development on Navajo land, um, but that Navajos deserve what he calls a piece of the action. Um, uh, and that you know, Navajos really deserve a much larger share of the both the profits generated from these plants, but also in the management of these plants. Uh, and, you know, he's really envisioning these plants as a new, if in an earlier conception, electrical power generation was supposed to draw kind of new industry to the reservation and kind of new jobs. Um, for McDonald, the plants can serve as a, a means to kind of help train a new generation of uh, Navajo managers that can one day take them over. Um, and so he's really demanding a kind of greater voice in the management of plants in kind of the, that, you know, Navajo people should not only work in the lowest rungs of employment plants, but they should also be able to go and work in St. Louis at Peabody Cole's headquarters there. Um, and they should be managers. Um, you know, so he's, you know, really seeking to pursue kind of um, pursue arrangements where Navajos would have the Navajo Nation would have joint ownership of you know of 
both coal mines and power plants. Um, you know, at the same time that he's you know proposing, and this you know he's really proposing a kind of decolonial strategy of nationalization. Um, at the same time that he's you know proposing this, there are other people saying that there are no ways that these that that the system itself is so unequal and exploitative that um, that the strategy should be rejection um, and you know and kind of rejecting the presence of energy development itself on uh, you know on Navajo land and uh, removing the plants rather than nationalizing and so how do you know this is a big question, but but what happens? I mean, are they? Are, is is Peter McDonald successful? I mean, are you know, if you can take this this story through the present? Sure. No, and I think that the, I think you know one thing that um, kind of one dynamic that I really discovered in doing this is the the power of the power of capital, the power of investment once it's set in place on the landscape. Um, in the you know in the early seventies, um, McDonald and the Navajo Nation enter into negotiations with a company called Wesco, and this is the this is the kind of height of the oil crisis uh, and the energy crises of the early um, of the early nineteen seventies. And Wesco wants to open uh, a series of what are called coal gasification plants, which would you know which would transform coal into into methane and essentially transform coal you know into into natural gas uh, and even in some cases into gasoline um, as a you know as a means of you know kind of um, kind of supplanting oil uh, global oil supplies um, Wesco you know offers up in a way the kind of arrangement that McDonald is looking for. It's not a kind of joint ownership. It's not a 50-50 share, but the royalties are much better. There's an enforceable Navajo employment clause both at the plant and in, you know, in a training program at West Coast corporate headquarters. Um, um, and, you know, they are, you know, I think they're, you know, qualitatively better contracts than is offered uh, at uh, that were offered at you know Four Corners or um, or Black Mesa. Um, at the same time, local opposition is is you know incredibly you know incredibly unanimous against the plant at the local chapter called Burnham. Um, there are three votes taken. I think you know out of you know out of three votes, probably out of a thousand total votes. The number of votes in favor of the plants may be in the single digits uh, at the local at the local chapter level, mm-hmm. um, and you know this, you know this local opposition um, and the you know people from the Navajo tribe, officials from the Navajo tribe, are saying things like, you know, people the people at Black Mesa have sacrificed for the Navajo Nation. The people at Four Corners have sacrificed for the Navajo Nation. Now it's Burnham's turn, essentially, to sacrifice. Mm. And um, you know that, that's not a, quite an accurate representation of, I think, how the people at Black Mesa, you know, had felt about you know, or at you know, at you know, near Navajo, mine had felt about 
uh, about these, you know, about, you know, their, you know, their sacrifices was not, you know, particularly willing, uh, willing choice. Um, uh, but uh, that kind of rejection before the, before the investment, before the capital gets located in space in the form of, you know, in the form of a power plant, in the form of a power line, uh, you know, is, uh, is, you know, malleable. It's the, these plants are defeated, um, uh, you know, in part because it's just too, it's too difficult for the company to locate, you know, to locate uh, the plants there politically. Um, at the same time, Four Corners power plant, Navajo generating station, uh, Navajo mine, Black Mesa and Cayenta mines uh, have been, um, you know, our capital invested uh, in uh, in place, uh, and you know, until the until the mid two thousands, you know, really continued, you know, resisted, you know, efforts to, you know, to close them, resisted. You know, efforts to even at Four Corners install technologies that would reduce emissions from the you know from the plants. I mean, this is you know in a way this is the kind of the early history of uh, the battle over coal-fired power plants that we see that we see today work you know working itself out nationally is first kind of pursued and articulated by Navajo people. I mean, you know, yeah. kind of Navajo people have been debating coal-fired power a lot longer than, you know, than the rest of Americans, you know, have been. And I think there are, you know, that, you know, you know, they know a lot more about, you know, the, the problems of coal-fired power uh, that other Americans are just beginning to discover. Um, I do want to push you on, um, on maybe one contention within that. And, and, I'm undecided sure. on it myself, and I think that you know there's a. I probably am too. <laughs> <laughs> so this this idea that once capital is fixed in place, as you say, once the physical energy production infrastructure is there, uh, meaningful challenges to the system become, you know, if not impossible, then very very difficult. And certainly the story you've told illustrates that well. And I think there's actually lessons in that probably for the resistance efforts um, predominantly among first nations in Canada, but also in the U S around the sort of pipeline projects and the extraction projects that, I mean, essentially you better stop them before they even yes. go into the ground because once yes, they go I into the that... ground, but I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering is I just, whenever I hear something, you know, so you say at the end of the book, once capital is fixed in space, it really could not be reversed. It could only be regulated. And I just, is there a, a sort of, is there no alternative past a certain point? In essence, are we are we trapped once the infrastructure gets put in place? I think that's probably too. I think that's probably too categorical. Okay. I mean, I think that there there, um, you know, that it you know it could not be reversed. It could only be regulated. Um, I think what what does happen is that kind of capital fixed in place changes the terms. Um, it begins to, you know, it begins to, you know, it makes, you know, resistance much more, much more, more difficult, uh, and requires, you know, requires, you know, strategies that would target kind of different, I'm trying to think of a way that like, you know, so 
many of the power plants in the Southwest are today being shut down. Mojave Generating Station, which was fed by a, a, a coal slurry line from Black Mesa, a line that a, a pipeline that stretched three hundred miles from Black Mesa to the Colorado River, um, where a deep aquifer uh, was mined to mix with coal dust to, to transport this coal. A deep aquifer, of course, in the landscape that receives eight inches of rain uh, a year. Um, um, this plant was shut down not um, was shut down because of um, concerns about kind of climate change emissions. It was shut down uh, in two thousand in two thousand seven. That's certainly an example of where kind of capital fixed in place, you know, you know, ceased um, ceased to function, uh, and you know, and, and and you know, where these kind of infrastructure, you know, was you know more or less abandoned. Um, the reason that it was abandoned, though, uh, had, uh, had to do with kind of state regulation uh, and federal regulation rather than local, local activism. So I think that maybe what that says is that once capital is fixed in place, kind of how it functions mm-hmm. um, requires... A different a, poli- a different kind of politics and a politics at a different at a different location and requires new kind of new new forms of political alliance building um, where the where the kind of the strategy against the Burnham plants was largely locally driven um, the you know strategy to close Mojave generating station um, was a strategy pursued at the state at the state of California uh, and the federal level. Um, and that requires a different kind of um, Navajo people were, in, were, you know, involved and engaged, you know, in those debates. Uh, and they were involved in, in, you know, seeing that there were some, you know, in a sense, compensation paid for, you know, the years that Mojave generating station had operated the way that the coal mine, you know, had provided, um, had provided good jobs, and that it's that you know the kind of reduction in production with the closing of Mojave would be, um, you know, would be compensated. But it was also a strategy that had to you know, that required a really broad, a really broad alliance. Hmm. So I've been speaking with uh, Andrew Needham, who's professor, associate professor of history at New York University. We've been discussing Power Lines, Phoenix, and the Making of the Modern Southwest. It came out from the University, uh, the Princeton University Press last year. Um, by way of getting to a conclusion, um, I guess I, I want to ask if there's if there's one thing you hope readers can come away from this book with, um, and I know that there, you know, readers are differently located. You maybe want a different, you know, this, the, the takeaway you, you desire might be different depending on who's reading it and where they're reading it. You know, um, we're both talking in the Northeast, um, you know, our power, the, the, the electricity that is, um, generating this conversation over Skype is, is not being drawn from the Navajo nation. So <laughs> hydro, hydro Quebec. Is that right? Some of it. See, that's, I mean, that's already such a fascinating, I mean, this is one of the things I just love this project is, is 
you've taken something that is, and this is the, this is what great history should do. You've taken something that is unquestioned and naturalized and say, you know, where, where does this come from? Um, you know, I, I don't know the, the energy source, uh, of the electricity I'm using right now. Um, though this book will motivate me to find out and, uh, I'll take your word for it. It's, it's Hydro Quebec for New York and New that, England. That's one of the sources. That's a kind of, that's, you know, I mean, one of the things that happens to electricity is that kind of where it comes from becomes increasingly difficult to trace, right? right. As kind of right. multiple, multiple sources are kind of, are, you know, collected into pools that, that consumers, you know, draw on um, because of the way that kind of, you know, engineers turn, you know, bring plants online and take them offline and channel power, you know, channel power in different, uh, in different directions. But I mean, I think that, you know, you have targeted, you know, one of the things that I really hope that, you know, ways that I hope people use my book is that just to kind of, you know, to do their own kind of acts of, you know, of tracing, uh, of tracing power, you know, and I think, you know, in a surprising, a surprising, I mean, you know, this book is, you know, very much about the Southwest. Um, but I think, you know, in a surprising number of cases, um, tracing these power lines are going to lead, um, people back to spaces where native people's, uh, native people's live today. Um, and are going to reveal kind of stories of, you know, of dispossession um, that, you know, oftentimes remain hidden. I mean, the most valuable responses I've gotten to this point of the book are some emails that I've received from um, uh, from people that from Navajo people uh, saying that, you know, this is, you know, people who work who worked at the power plants and said, you know, kind of what you you know, what you've written is really, you know, is really important um, and, and, you know, reflects what I, I remember accurately. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, you know, to see that was incredibly, you know, incredibly heartening. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think that, so I think that you're right, is that kind of people in different places will read and can hopefully use this book in, in different ways, but I think that that act of, of tracing tracing power and thinking about the kind of material um, details of you know one's daily lives and you know who they touch and what inequalities are embedded in them uh, is you know is is a useful exercise for people attempting to live morally in the world. Professor Needham, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Andrew Needham, author of Power Lines, Phoenix and the Making of the Modern Southwest from Princeton University Press. You can find us on the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can listen to all of the past podcasts. We're also on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. For the New Books Network, I'm Andrew Epstein. Thanks for listening.